Amen. Take your copy of God's Word this morning, if you will, and turn to 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and how great it is to see you all in person this morning. I love my family. I love them dearly. But sometimes it's nice to see other people. Sometimes it's nice to have a relationship with others and talk with others. Hey, how blessed was it yesterday when we were able to actually see the sun shine? I was hoping for a little more this morning, but I think it's maybe going to pop out today and help us. You know, the sun makes a lot of difference, does it not? Yesterday when that sun came out, the landscape that we had seen, remember that white landscape that we had seen all week long, it began to transform. It began to melt. It began to give way to something else that was underneath the snow. And there are parts now where you can actually see a street or you can see a yard. It made a difference that the sun popped out and transformed the landscape. I'm looking forward to more transformation in the days to come. Or otherwise, I hate to tell you, I'm going back to South Louisiana somewhere. But transformation, it occurs because the sun shines. You know, I was thinking about that this week as I was preparing this message, that in so many ways when the sun of God, when the sun, S-O-N, shines into our lives, he transforms us. He changes us. He helps us to grow into his image. All of us this morning who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we should be a transformed people. And Paul has made that case already, but he continues to make the case as we look at chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. He says, finally then, I love this, because Paul is your typical Baptist preacher. He says, finally then, and he's still got half of his message left. Because he's spoken to us in three chapters and he's about to go into the last two of his letter. But to be fair to Paul, it's not so much about the closing as it is a result. Like this is what I want to say to you from here forward. I've spoken to you, but now I'm making a transition. A transition of calling you to this holy lifestyle. He says, finally then, brethren... We urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more, just as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God. For you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one should take advantage of or defraud his brother in this matter, because the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also forewarned you and testified. For God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who has also given us his Holy Spirit. He makes a transition he says, I'm writing to encourage and to exhort you. And he continues to do that. He goes on and on encouraging them and calling them to right living. In the last few verses of chapter 3, you will notice that he broke out into a pastoral prayer. 
And what did Paul want for the church? What did he want for the church at Thessalonica in particular? He wanted them to grow in faith. He wanted them to grow in love. And he wanted them to grow in holiness. That's what he was praying for. He wanted them to increase. That was the wording that he gave us. That they would increase and that they would grow more and more and more. And now he writes and he says, I want you to abound more and more. I want you to increase. It's the same language that he used in his prayer at the end of chapter 3. And the idea is that you are going to increase and increase and increase particularly in your holiness, in being set apart, in being different. In other words, you and I as Christian believers ought to be making progress. Now, what is the purpose? What is the purpose of transformation? What are we trying to accomplish? We are trying to accomplish holiness. We want to be set apart. Well, if we are to be set apart, that means that the purpose of our growth is to look more like Jesus. You've heard me say that over and over. If you are going to be holy, if you want to look in a holier state, then that means you've got to emulate the Holy One. You've got to be able to try to see His characteristics and to be able to live those characteristics in your life. The purpose of transformation, the reason we want to be transformed is so that we'll look more like Jesus, so that we'll look more like God. Notice where it says that this is how you ought to walk and to please God. So the goal is to please God and to look more like him. Now it comes through our understanding of his precepts, of his commands. Did you hear what Paul said? Paul said that you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. In other words, we commanded you to live a certain way. And the instruction that we gave you will help you to live a life that is set apart, that is different. Do you understand like the Bible, what God has given us in the scripture, it would be the manual to help us grow. It will help us to live accordingly to his will. It will help us to live accordingly to this set apartness that he has called us to. That is the reason Paul encourages, he exhorts. Something I noted as I was studying through this scripture, even this little letter, is that the first three chapters, he speaks in declarative sentences. Some of you know what a declarative sentence is. Some of you do. Some of you did before you've been out for one week of school. But you're going to learn when you go back. It was just kind of a statement. In the first three chapters, he just spoke in statements. But in the last two chapters, it's amazing that all of a sudden he picks up this imperative. He speaks up this command because he wants to Show them this is what God intends for their lives. He even says, I urge you in Jesus Christ, in the Lord Jesus Christ. So he has given us the case for transformation. He says, our purpose is to look, look more like Jesus. The way we can accomplish it is through the precepts. And of course, certainly it's going to take a while. Because none of us arrive just like that. None of us arrive to where we want to be in our Christian life instantaneously. We have to grow. It's a process. Notice again it says in verse 3, this is the will of God, your sanctification. The word sanctification, which again goes along with this idea of holiness, well, it speaks to a process. That holiness is a process. You don't just achieve it overnight overnight. 
You can grow daily, but there's a consistency that needs to be accomplished in your life. You have to, you have to grow into his image, and it's going to take a while. It's going to be a process. There was a little song that we would sing when I was a child in our churches. It went something like this. He is still working on me to make me what I ought to be. Remember that song? Yeah, about five of you. Those of us who are 40 plus, maybe. You remember that song, Jason, back in the 40s or so when you were coming up? They were things like that. that you would hear that song, God's still working on me. He's still making a difference in who I need to be. God is making a progressive growth. God works that way. God doesn't say, boom, here's Tony. Tony's going to be exactly what I want Tony to be tomorrow. Like he didn't just say it's going to happen overnight. He says, I've got a lot of work. And if you know Tony, there is a lot of work to be done. And he says, I've got a lot of work here. It's going to accomplish. Now listen, God has the power to change you. And through salvation, he secures your eternal destination. And he could, he could change you overnight if he wanted to because that's the God we have. He has that type of power. But that is not the way he has chosen to, to transform you and change you. He has chosen to transform you through a process, day by day, working on your life, working in your attitudes, working in your actions, day by day. That's a process. And none of us have arrived. All of us are in the process of growth. If we still have breath in our lungs and we're still walking this earth, that means we're still in process. God's still working to transform us. So Paul is making his case for transformation. But I want you to see that as he makes his case for transformation, he gives us a case study in transformation. And he turns particularly to the issue of the believer's sexual ethic. He talks about how we look at sex and how we practice sex within the church context as a family, as, as a group of believers. Notice what he says. This is the will of God, your sanctification. So he says, it's God's will that you will be set apart. Oh, let me just say this. You don't have to pray whether or not you should be growing in Christ. You don't have to say, God, do I need to really grow in you today? You don't have to do that. You know why? Because God's already answered the question for you. I believe there are a lot of things we don't even have to pray about because God's already answered it in his scripture. And he says, this is God's will to you. Dr. Fred Wolf, I think a great statesman in our Southern Baptist family, passed away around the holidays of COVID. And Dr. Wolf, as he was at First Zachary once upon a time, he looked at me and he said, Reggie, he said, 90% of knowing God's will is being surrendered to God's will to start with. All of us going out searching for God's will, we need to just say, God, we're surrendered to it. And God seems to be able to come to us and show us. And there's so many things he's already said, this is, this is my will. My will is sanctification, the process of transforming you. And then again, as I said, he gives you the case study. He said, let me give you an example. If you want to be sanctified, this is the will of God, then that means you will abstain from sexual immorality. God's will for you, listen, God's will for you 
is to abstain from sexual immorality. Now, that word for sexual immorality is a word that is very general. In the Greek, it is the word pornea, which you obviously can tell that the English word porn was derived from that English term. But it was very general. It would speak to premarital sex. It would speak to extramarital sex. It would speak to homosexual activity. It would speak to heterosexual activity that was outside the realm of marriage. It was a very general term that I think included so much of that which was against God and against his purposes. And notice when Paul is saying this, he is really speaking in a countercultural way. Like he's coming to the culture and he's saying, hey, you should not have any part of sexual immorality. That would go against the culture of the day. When you study anything about the Greco-Roman world, you would find out that it was a world filled with sexual excess. Paul was writing from a city called Corinth. Corinth was known for its sexual immorality. Did you know that they even coined a term to Corinthianize people meant to like bring them into immorality? It was to bring them specifically into sexual immorality. Like if you were called a Corinthian, well, that would, that would not be a good thing as, as you think about integrity and purity. Because to be a Corinthian was to be involved, it seemed, with sexual immorality. The Greco-Roman world was fixated on the sex, sex trade, upon sexual worship. There in Corinth, for example, they had a bunch of temples. And they had prostitutes within those temples. And all of this, in some way, constituted worship. Paul could have been writing this letter, and he could have looked out his window, and he could have seen the sexual excesses, the sexual immorality of the day. And certainly Thessalonica was not too far removed from such an ethic. Sounds about like the world we live in today. Tony Evans, Tony Evans said it so rightly. Tony Evans said that sex is the American obsession. It is the drug of choice for Americans today. He said, while the Puritans may have lived as though there were no such thing as sex, Americans live today as there is nothing else but sex. Certainly, we live in a sex-saturated society. And yet, sex itself was given in the, in the context of marriage. Remember what the writer of Hebrews says. The writer of Hebrews chapter 13 verse 4 says, Marriage is honorable among all, and the bed undefiled. But fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. In other words, he says marriage is an honorable place, especially for the sexual relationship that you have together. It is the place that God has intended between two, a husband and wife. So when he is writing to the church at Thessalonica, he says, this is a case study in being transformed. This is a case study in transformation. You should live differently than those who are around you. You should not embrace the sexual ethic of the Greco-Roman world, but rather you should listen to God and his will for your life. 
Because God intended for us to have transformed actions, right? Our actions need to be transformed. But if our actions are transformed, that means our attitudes have been transformed. Look at what he says in verse 4. That each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. Not in passion of lust. He says all of us need to be able to control our vessel. Now, some of your translations, I don't know if it may say uh, control your body, control your wife. Look, there's no way you'll ever control your wife. And neither should you. All right? I mean that. But it says some interpretations may try to say body, wife. I believe as Paul was writing and based upon my study, when he says that you are to control your vessel, he is trying to say that you are to demonstrate control over your own body. That you are to demonstrate self-control in who you are. Now, what controls the body? The brain. The brain and speaks loudly. The brain tells you to speak. The brain tells you to be able to move your hands and your arms. It tells you to be able to walk as you should. The brain. All action is based upon your belief, upon the direction of the brain. In your holiness and who you are, if you're going to live differently, that means you got to think differently. So he says, abstain from sexual immorality, but then he goes to the heart of it. He says, you got to demonstrate self-control in your life. You've got to demonstrate a control over your passions. You are to demonstrate the control over your attitudes. We have so many different competing attitudes today. We hear the attitude of the culture we know the attitudes that we fight within. The attitude of the culture, again, is that of the Greco-Roman world where anything and everything is fine now. Anything and everything seems to go. Well, there may be a few things, but really today, listen to what culture says. Culture says if you feel like that's who you are and what you ought to be doing, then you ought to go for it. And we applaud it now. Actually, it's amazing when you look at social media and people will say, hey, I feel like basically I've got to do this and I've got to do that. And there's so many people, even Christian people, I would say that, even people who belong to churches that applaud things that are directly against God's will. The attitude of the culture that we're facing. Some of you may have read in the last couple weeks, Max Lucado, many of you have probably read his books. I've read his books. Max Lucado was asked to preach at the Washington National Cathedral just a couple weeks ago. And there was a great outcry from culture that the National Cathedral would allow Max Lucado to preach. And there were petitions raised, signatures gathered to prevent him from doing that. Why? Because he believed in the traditional biblical definition of marriage of one woman and one man together. That's why. Because they believe that he harmed the lives of others who would choose different types of lifestyles. Do you see how attitudes have switched in the last few years? 
1999, 35% of people approved of same-sex marriage. 62% disapproved. In 2020, according to Jim Dennison, 67% of individuals approved of same-sex marriage, while 31% disapproved. Do you see the attitude switching? Now, I believe we are to declare the truth in love. And I believe we ought to love people no matter what's going on in their lives. If they're messed up in a heterosexual relationship, you and I should love them. If they're an adulterer, we should love them. If they're an individual that practices something that is outside of God's will, we should love them. But we should also maintain the truth of who we are as a people, as a people of God in holiness. I'm afraid today not only have we given in with our attitudes, but even some of our denominations have given in to things that are totally unholy. Do you listen how Paul would speak? Paul says, abstain from every type of sexual immorality. Did you hear that? He said, well, that's easy for Paul. No, I told you it's not easy for Paul because Paul was speaking into a world that did not know God and did not even attempt to try to live by God's principles. So get this, you and I are in the same place Paul would be. And yet we should love like Paul did and we should speak truth as Paul did. But you know, it's not so much the culture right now that I'm so concerned about. I'm not saying I don't have some concern. I'm not, that's not my major concern. You know, when I speak about attitudes, I think we need to speak about the attitude of us personally and self-control in our lives. Because you know how we got there, how we've gotten to this place? is because the church in its sexual relationships, the church has looked like the world for quite a while. This all didn't just happen overnight. We in our relationships, while we would push back against certain subjects and certain things, we were living like the world. And he says it does not matter you and I ought to demonstrate self-control. It's about the attitude. Isn't what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5? Jesus said this. Jesus said, you've heard it said, you should not commit adultery. But I say unto you what? He said, if a man looks at a woman in lust, then he has committed adultery in his heart. In other words, it goes to the attitude as well. Listen to what Jesus said, Sermon on the Mount. Now, this is Jesus. This is pretty rough. Jesus said, if your eye offends you, do what? Pluck it out. Now, he was using exaggerated language. I know that, hyperbolic language. But he says, pluck it out. He said, if your hand offends you, do what? Cut it off. That's, that's I know it's exaggerated language, but man, this is Jesus. I didn't know Jesus could say things like this. But Jesus was so... Jesus was so committed to the holiness of his disciples that he wanted them to understand. He wanted them to understand the seriousness of the sexual relationship and he wanted them to be pure. And he said, you should live a life of purity even in your thought life, in your attitudes. If you're going to control your vessel, your body, you've got to have the right attitude, self-control. Oh, I need to say this. You can never control your own thoughts and passions alone. 
See, some of you say, well, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to look at that. I'm not going to have this thought. I'm not going to do this. And some of you are doing that, and you say it over and over again. It's like an addiction. You say it over and over again, and then you just keep doing it. It's like you can't break free. You know why? Because you can never break free of sin on your own. No wonder you're frustrated. No wonder you've given up and just surrendered to that sin. You know why? Because you're not relying upon the Holy Spirit of God in your life to help you. Look what he says in verse 8. That he had given us his Holy Spirit. Ah, that's the key. I can't overcome sin on my own. I can't, I can't control these thoughts on my own. I can't control my attitudes on my own. But get this, the Holy Spirit comes into my life to change me and transform me. And the Holy Spirit helps me with my thoughts and helps me with my actions. The Holy Spirit gives me power. You and I need to understand that it's not through self-effort that we attain self-control. It is through the spirit effort that we are able to see self-control in our lives. The Spirit makes a difference. Whether you have an opposite-sex attraction or a same-sex attraction that is outside of God's will, it's the Holy Spirit that will come and give you exactly what you need. Obtain, abstain from sexual immorality. Learn to control your passions through the Spirit's work. Well, what can I do? What can I, I I'm, I'm dating this guy right now. What can I do? I'm dating this girl. What can I, let me tell you this. The question should never be, what can I do? The question should be, Lord, tell me right now what will help me grow into your image through this relationship. Because this is what has happened. God has given us transformed actions as a holy people and he has given us transformed attitudes because he has transformed our allegiances. What do I mean by that? First, my allegiance is to God and to, to him as a priority of who I am. I'm transformed by him and my knowledge of him. Did you get this? He said in verse 5, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. The word Gentile there is not just this ethnic type of term it's rather one to speak about unbelievers that unbelievers as a whole they don't know God and thus they are acting in their own passion and lust but you and I as believers we know God and that transforms our allegiance who are you committed to you're committed to God because you're his you belong to him hey this is what Paul said to the Corinthians he said now, the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. You see, the Lord has saved me. The Lord has worked in my life. I have a knowledge of him, and thus, I want to please him and to serve him. That's where my allegiance should be. So if my body is his, then I want to use my body appropriately for his will. And his service. Oh, did you know that marriage itself is a representation of the gospel? The gospel is that God loved you so much that he came while you and I were still sinners and he sent his son, the Lord Jesus, to die on the cross 
for our sins because all of us should have died there. And Jesus was resurrected in power. He was resurrected to show us that he could give us forgiveness of all our sins, even the sexual immorality that we had participated in beforehand. He would forgive us. But what was God doing? God was making a covenant, a relationship with the people. Oh, in the Old Testament, he used the word marriage and he used that as an analogy of his relationship with Israel. It was the Old Covenant. Now we have the New Testament, the New Covenant, the new relationship. God has entered into a new relationship with us. And what is God? God is committed to us. He is committed to us. He loves us. He is faithful. Hey, how many of us could testify that our God is faithful? He pursued us in love. And when he brought us into the family, it was a love that was sustaining, that was the eternal this relationship. When you and I enter into marriage and we say we're making a covenant with this other person to give ourselves fully and willingly to this other individual, when we do this, it is an act of covenant and commitment. And what we are doing in many ways, we're saying that we believe the covenant of God, what is how God has worked in our lives individually, but also we're demonstrating it now through the covenant of marriage. It is a display of the gospel. Marriage itself should preach the good news of Jesus Christ. Tim Keller said, while culture sees the purpose of marriage as personal satisfaction, it is the Bible that says the purpose of marriage is for personal sanctification. That he is growing us through marriage and that we are able to proclaim the good news even through marriage itself. So my allegiance is to God, but not just that. If you hear what Paul says, Paul says that no one should take advantage of or defraud his brother in this matter now, some people have taken that and said, that means you ought not to defraud your brother in business matters. But notice, even in the original language, it says this matter, still talking about sexual immorality, I believe Paul is. So what does he mean here? Paul says, you and I have an obligation and allegiance to our brothers and sisters in Christ. We have allegiance. I would even go as far as saying we have allegiance to humanity itself. And when you cross the boundaries, listen to me, when you cross the boundaries of sexual relationship outside of marriage, you have just defrauded and harmed somebody. Yes, you have. Paul says there is no other sin like the sin of sexual immorality that affects you and affects your own body. He says that to the Corinthians. But I will tell you that sexual immorality will also tear apart families, it will tear apart lives, it will tear apart individuals. It is a sin against others as well. If you are single and you have sex before marriage, well, I'm going to marry this individual. You don't know that. Not until there is a commitment and covenant before God and before the, that which is 
the legal requirements. You do not know that. God never said, you're going to get married, therefore it's fine for you to have a sexual relationship. God did not say that. You're having a sexual relationship with that boyfriend or girlfriend, you're not married. Let me tell you that you have defrauded your brother or sister in Christ through that relationship. You have defrauded that prospective husband and wife. You have defrauded them. You're married. And folks, I know this is heavy stuff. But you're married. And you go outside of the marriage relationship to be able to find some type of personal satisfaction. I am going to tell you, you will wreak havoc upon your marriage upon your family and upon some other people. You see, the Ten Commandments were not given simply to deprive you of joy. The Ten Commandments of the Old Testament was actually given so that his people would know what joy truly is, to protect them. When he said, thou shalt not commit adultery, he meant if you stayed in the marriage relationship, you could find joy and satisfaction. You go outside of that marriage relationship and you will do damage, and it will follow you. I can tell you children and grandchildren still who are processing the sin of adultery that occurred in their family some 30 years ago. Don't tell me it won't affect people. But I think God's telling me that I need a, a more spiritual partner. I've heard that before as a pastor. And you know what I've said is that is a, totally against what God's word would teach. I don't care what you think you're supposed to do. The revelation of God is the command that has spoken to us and he has said that we should abstain. This is the will of God, that we should abstain from sexual immorality. And I'm going to tell you why so many of us have gone out and we've spoken against same-sex marriage. We have allowed our marriages to crumble within our own churches. You and I are called to purity. We are called to live a life of fidelity. No wonder we live in a culture that just experienced what we call the Me Too movement. And women were treated in terrible ways. I do not believe it is because of conservative theology. I believe it is because we have lived unholy, ungodly lifestyles. And we have permitted so much of this to happen in our society and culture. We even see it in our churches. We see it in our leadership. And it is, it is disheartening. It is discouraging. But my friends, I speak to you today with a sense of seriousness and I speak to you today with a solemn attitude so that you and I could try to avoid these destructive things in our lives. You know why? Because we ought to love our brothers and sisters in Christ and not do anything that would damage them or damage their relationships. Let me give this finally. Finally, and I got, some of you say, finally, he's got half left. No, I got about 18 seconds. Probably about three minutes I'm going to take. But I want to show you the case 
as it is reviewed for transformation. This is where it is sobering to me that Paul is speaking to believers and he has said that we are to be transformed. He gave us a case study, said transformation, especially in our sexual ethic, how we live. But also he says, there is a review date. There's going to be a moment when your case is reviewed of whether or not you are making transformation. This is what he says, verse 6. Because the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also forewarned you and testified. Man, that's, that's tough. I, I would almost just like to skip over these passages sometimes. And yet, it is incumbent upon us to hear the whole counsel of God. What does he say? He says, God's watching. I don't mean this in a, such a negative way of like, hey, he's going to get you, this and this. But I want you to know this. You and I need to be sober that God knows what's going on in our lives. Someone has said that we should live such that whatever we do would be something that would be appropriate for God's audience, for his eyes, because God is always watching. And he says, if you defraud your brother or sister, if you damage them, then know that God himself, he is the one who speaks for that which is damaged. He is the one who speaks for those who are oppressed. He will be those who, he will be that one which will come and push back because there is a court date of transformation. Have we been transformed? There's also the review based upon his call, for God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. In other words, when we stand before him, get this, get this. Saved, positionally, when I stand before Jesus, before God, I stand in the righteousness of Jesus. So what happened? When I was saved, the righteousness, man, that stuff I had on, filthy rags. Somebody asked me today, you're wearing a suit. I said, yeah, because have you seen what I wore this week? I, I was ready to dress up, buddy. I needed, oh, man, yeah. Took off some old clothes and put on some new ones. When I come to Jesus and he saves me from my sin, he takes off that old filthy stuff and he puts on new stuff. But if I'm going to wear the new stuff, I can't go around trying to be unclean and filthy again in my life. When I stand before him positionally, yes, positionally, I am with him. He has saved me and they see the, and that God sees the righteousness of Jesus. But I'm going to tell you that you and I need to live every day so that ethically, morally, practically, we are living in holiness. Not just positionally, but practically living in holiness. Because that is the call of God upon our lives. It is the command. He says, therefore, who, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God who also, who has also given us his Holy Spirit. In other words, Paul says, all right, Thessalonians, you can get mad at me. Of course, you know, I was thinking it's a whole lot better I could deliver this message um, 
I'd rather deliver this message from New York probably than from Ruston. To you, that is, right to you. Because he's in Corinth writing Thessalonica. Yeah, that's easy sometimes. <laughs> but he knows he's going to face them again one day. And he said, hey, you can get mad about this, but this is God's word. And I've never told you that I bring a message to always make you happy, but I believe that God has called us to bring messages to make you holy. My friends, we need some holiness. I'm going to tell you, we as a church, I'm not talking about just temple, I'm talking about us as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We need an injection of holiness again. Not self-righteousness, we got enough of that. I'm talking about God righteousness where we will live and think differently where we will be transformed and changed. What's awesome is that we have a gracious and merciful God that is willing to save us and to wash us and cleanse us. Not only through salvation but even as we walk through he is able to come to us and cleanse us and give us a new start in a fresh way. But my friends, we must repent of our sins. We must come to him and say, God, we're sorry. And there's some of us in here today that in our relationships, we have not been pure. And we need to bow before God and we need to say, God, we're sorry. We need to say, God, we're dependent upon you because God, we've been trying to do this in our own way and it's not working out too well. God, we need your spirit to empower us to be the people of purity, to be the people who are growing in you. Because yes, we are transformed in salvation, but we need to be transformed through sanctification day in and day out. Would you hear God's work in your life today? I'm not talking to you even about the cultural wars right now. I'm asking about the war in your heart right now. Would you listen to what God is saying to you and how he is calling you to greater purity, how he's calling you to greater transformation? Would you respond to him? Would you find forgiveness in him? Would you find a new set of holiness in his word, in his presence. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for my brothers and sisters who are here. Thank you for those who have been watching. And God, I pray that today that they do not hear an angry heart, but they hear a burdened heart. Father, today in this place and online, I pray that you would help us as your people. Because Lord, we know this infects so many of us and so many of our families. We pray that we would commit to you afresh and anew. That we would call out to you and we'd, Lord, just acknowledge how we have fallen short of the glory. Lord, wash us and cleanse us today. Help us to be new. Help us to be fresh. 
Help us to truly be holy. God, give us liberty to confess our sins. Give us strength to walk in a newness of life. Do a work in us, we pray, we beg you, so that we might be the people you are pleased with, you are delighted with. God, we pray it now in your pure and holy name and for your sake, in Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand?